Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for listening, and thank you for your ratings and reviews and feedback. It sustains us, and we're very happy to have such a great audience. This is episode number 39 of The Next Track, and today we're going to be talking about storing your media on a network-attached storage device. I've always used plain old external drives for my media and have never dabbled with a network-attached storage device, or NAS, or NAS for short. So, Kirk, what are the basic differences between those two kinds of storage, and what are the advantages of using an NAS? Well, there are advantages and disadvantages. The difference is in the name, a network-attached storage device. It's a device that's on the network, which means that it's not directly connected to your computer. Some NAS devices allow you to also directly connect if you want, and that can be very practical when you're copying a lot of files, so you're copying them directly instead of with the speed limitations of your network. But the interest of a network-attached storage device is that it's on your network, and it can be anywhere as long as you have network access. I have a NAS connected to my Mac Mini server. It's in my TV room. I could put that NAS in any room in the house with a set of power line adapters. So power line adapters are network adapters that go through the power lines in your house. You plug one in next to your router, you connect it with an Ethernet cable, and you plug another one in in the room where you want to put a device. And that has an Ethernet jack, and I could connect it to the NAS. So if I wanted to put the NAS in a different room, which I'm actually planning to, I can easily do so. A network attached storage device contains one or more hard disks, but it also has a processor and RAM and an operating system. It's a relatively simple operating system. They're generally based on one version of Linux, but they give you a lot of flexibility in terms of configuring things. You can set up user accounts with permissions, so you can have a public folder that anyone can access, or you can have a user account just for yourself that only you can access with your username and password. You can use apps on a lot of NAS devices. For instance, if you use Plex to manage your media library, then some devices will let you install the Plex app. Uh, I'll link to an article I wrote on my website at one point about the NAS I have. It's the WD MyCloud XT2. It's a two-disc unit. It's very quiet. It's fanless. It has a number of apps. You can even run WordPress on it. You can run BitTorrent apps if that's your thing. You can run Plex, and, and Plex is actually quite flexible. And, and I think any NAS that lets you install apps has a version of Plex available for it. So it's basically a small computer, but it doesn't do a lot of the things that a computer does. You can't connect a display to it, but it has an operating system. It has configuration, user accounts, storage policies, so you could store certain files in certain ways. I think pretty much every NAS these days has a USB port in the back, so you can plug in an external drive to back up the NAS, to back up the files on the NAS. So essentially, it's a little bit more involved than plugging an external drive in, but it can do a little bit more work for you, and because it's on the network, it can be available to all the computers that are also on your network. Not only that, it can be available to people outside of your network. A lot of these different devices now have their own system where your NAS connects to their server to do sort of address resolution, and you can connect with an app to your NAS through their server, if that makes sense. So you're not connecting directly to your NAS, but you're going through a server with the company. For instance, again, mine is a WD, and they have a system like that. So you can actually access files of your own when you're not at home 
or you're not at your office. And even ignoring, today we're going to talk about media files. Ignoring that, you can use this to make your own personal Dropbox of unlimited size. The only limitation you have with something like that is if your network goes down at home or you lose power, you lose access to the files. So if these are really crucial files, you'd want to trust it to a cloud service that's going to guarantee you know, 24-7 availability. Yeah. Um, but I, if I ever set it up like that, I, I don't think I would use it for mission-critical stuff. So a, a power outage, which is pretty rare where I live, uh, wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, where I live, it's not uncommon. You know, I'm in a semi-rural area, so it's not uncommon. We get storms, we'll get power outages. Sometimes it's just a blip, but everything restarts, and sometimes it's a minute or so. Um, so it depends on where you live. Right. Okay. So anyway, uh, are there any troubles in setting up a, a NAS to use with media files? And, well, and, and why would I want to use it for media files? Well, I can think of several reasons. Um, first of all, a little trouble. NASs have gotten a lot easier to configure in recent years. The first one I got... And this goes back maybe 10 years. It was really confusing. It was one of those ugly web interfaces that brought me back to the 1990s. Things weren't really well explained and all. But now you configure a NAS through a more attractive web interface, a lot of pointing and clicking. And, and there are a lot of advanced settings. Most of them you don't need. Now, why you would want to put your files on a NAS? There are a couple of reasons. Let's say that your main computer has a 256 gigabyte SSD. You might not want to connect a hard drive to it because you don't want to have to worry about having an extra wire coming out of your computer when you're working. Or you may have a laptop and you don't want to connect a hard drive to it at all. And when you're working, you may want to be able to listen to music. Now, of course, what this means is that any music that's on the NAS stays on the NAS. So if you're not at home, let's say you've taken your laptop to work, you can't listen to the same music. You kind of can in some situations, the way I said that, you know, you connect through the company's server and back to your NAS, but this is only for accessing individual files. We're going to specifically talk about iTunes a little bit later. You can't just access your iTunes media folder in that way. Also, another reason to put your media files on a NAS is that the NAS can be always on, so you can access these media files even when your computer's off. So, for example, I have my Plex library on my Mac Mini server. If I put it on the NAS, I wouldn't even need to leave the Mac Mini on if I want to watch a, a movie on my iPad. Another reason is that you want to centralize things and you don't want to have all of your stuff in one place. I, I said earlier, you can often connect an external drive to a NAS to, to run backups. Maybe you want to back up your media files separately, reliably. Your computer's in one place, your media files are in another different rooms. You know, there are a lot of reasons. You know, and one more thing I often hear conflated with a NAS is plugging an external drive into an airport extreme or other base station. That's not, um, that's just an external drive that's available to me wirelessly, right? Which is different from a NAS. That's an external drive that's available to you wirelessly. Exactly. Right. That, that was a perfect description. There's no operating system. There are no user accounts. However, you can use that external drive to say, put your iTunes media folder on the same way you would use a NAS. The only difference is, let's say that that external drive is passive. It does nothing. You can't do anything to it. I mean, you can set a password to access that external drive using Apple's airport software, but there's not much else you can do. Okay. Um, I'd like to use a NAS for my music collection. What's the first step? Yeah, iTunes is particularly well-suited to work like that. You can put your iTunes media folder on any device that you have access to. 
what you do is you go into iTunes preferences and, and then the advanced tab. And in the iTunes media folder location field, you click change and you select the folder. Now, this of course assumes that you have created a folder on the NAS, you've mounted the NAS, it's visible in your computer, etc. If this is the first time you're doing it, when you make that change and click OK, iTunes will copy all your files to that device if you have checked the Keep iTunes Media Folder Organized checkbox. And this is what you want, actually. You want your files to move to the device. So if you've already got an iTunes library and you've got files, this way it does it for you automatically. And when you do that, iTunes will alert you and ask you if you want iTunes to update the files to the new location. But I'm not sure why you would decline that. Well, you would do that if you want to keep your existing media files where they are and only add new ones to the device. That's the only reason I could see for doing that. One sort of gotcha is that iTunes doesn't always work correctly when it does that. So you choose File Library, Organize Library, and you check Consolidate Files if you're not sure that they've all gotten copied over. Now, in, in order to prepare for this show, a couple weeks ago, I took my MacBook's iTunes library, which is relatively small, and I moved it to my NAS, and not everything got copied, and then I did the consolidated files, and now there's two copies of most of my files. Now, see, that to me doesn't sound like a benefit. How did, uh, how did something like that happen? Well, I don't know. It seems like iTunes didn't realize that the files were already there and looked and said, well, these aren't the right files, so I'm going to copy another one. But it also said, well, but this has the same name, so I'm going to change the name by putting one at the end of the file name, which is what iTunes does when it detects a duplicate file. Right, exactly, because the iTunes database has been told that all the files are located in this spot, and now it's being told the files are supposed to be in this spot. And when it looks to copy them and sees a file with the same name in the same artist album hierarchy, iTunes presumes that the files are dupes, and it applies that number suffix to the file name to differentiate the two files, or three files, or, or more. Yeah, I, I think there must have been a network glitch when I was doing this, which made iTunes think that the change hadn't been made. And this is actually one of the points of this episode, is to talk about the network problems you have with iTunes. If you've ever used an external drive or a network drive with iTunes, you may have noticed at some point that all of a sudden, some of your files had little exclamation points in front of them. This is what iTunes calls dead tracks, tracks it can't find, tracks that are in the database that it thinks are in the library, but it's not in the right path. As you said a minute ago, it's looking at that exact file path. What happens is iTunes sometimes will decide, well, you told me the media folder was here. It's not there, so I'm just going to revert to going into your home folder, or on Windows, it would be your, your user folder. Now, for a long time, this was a very serious problem. Recently, what I'm seeing is that when iTunes does that, let's say you've set an external drive or a network drive, it reverts to the home folder. But the next time you launch iTunes and that external drive or network drive is available, then it reverts back. It used to be that it reverted just once, and then you were stuck until a month later you noticed your files weren't going into the right place. It's important that iTunes has a permanent iTunes media folder because... If you've ever ripped a CD, if you've ever converted a file, if you've ever bought a file from the iTunes store, iTunes needs to know where to put those files. You'll, you may have noticed that iTunes never asks you in a dialogue, where do you want me to put this ripped file? Where do you want me to put these store purchases? Where do you want me to put these converted files? iTunes needs to have a place to put things. Even if you never play a song, 
it still needs to know where it's going to put the files. So that's why you have to have a dedicated, a designated iTunes media folder. And that's why it reverts to the iTunes media folder in your home music folder, because it needs to have a location to put things. Yeah. So this has long been a problem. As I said, it's less of a problem now. But nevertheless, it's still an issue. And and here's here's one of the ways that this can be a problem. You could set that your network drive mounts automatically when you start up your Mac or your PC. On Mac OS, there's also a setting which tells your computer to reopen apps and windows that were open the last time you shut it down. So when you restart your Mac, if iTunes opens first before the network drive gets mounted, iTunes doesn't see it, and then it reverts to iTunes media folder location. Right, because the, the actual folder that you've designated as your iTunes media folder isn't accessible. Right, but even if that folder mounts five or 10 seconds later, and, and that's the problem. And, and this could be a problem with the way your computer processes all the things it does at startup. It could be a problem with your network being a little bit slow, your router, your settings, and things like that. So it's really important if you're going to use a NAS that you make sure that your network volume is always mounted before you launch iTunes. And this is the same if you're using an external drive that, that's not a network attached storage device. You, you don't usually have a problem with external drives because they mount immediately when you launch a Mac. There is There can be a delay with networks. Let's just say, for example, your Wi-Fi was off on your laptop and you come in and you launch iTunes and you say, oh, my Wi-Fi was off and then you turn it on. Your drive may mount, but you're snookered at that point. Because iTunes launched before it could find its iTunes media folder. Right. And what would really be great is if iTunes had an option to say, if the media folder is not there, please warn me. And this is actually an annoyance for a lot of people because, you know, over the years, you and I, we've heard from tons of people who've had problems, half their libraries in one disk and half's on another, and they only realize it much later and tracks get lost and all that. It wouldn't be hard for iTunes to say, hey, you know that folder that you selected in the preferences? Well, I can't find it. Would you like to find it first before I launch? That would really be simple. Do you think it would be better if iTunes did a little more waiting to launch until the drive may become available? No, I think if iTunes didn't launch, then you could have a problem that, let's say you've lost the disk or you have no network access, that it simply won't launch. Uh, it really just needs a dialogue saying, you know, here's the folder path you told me about. I'm not going to go any further until you tell me whether you want me to use this folder path or choose another one because there's something wrong. Actually, it would be really simple for iTunes to do that as long as Apple wanted to do that. Of course, I suspect this doesn't really affect a great percentage of users since a very large number of users have only a few hundreds of files or so on their local drive. Well, I mentioned in an earlier show that someone at Apple once told me that the average iTunes library is about 3,000 tracks. You'd have to have a really small internal storage device, hard drive or SSD, to worry about 3,000 tracks. So uh, I think we're dealing with the 1% of the 1%. Although I, I think anyone with a large music library is probably using an external drive. And this isn't only because they don't have enough room on their computer. This is also, if you have a large music library, it makes more sense to dedicate a drive to it for data security, for backups, etc. So I think you've got 1% of people who maybe do this in one way or another. So as part of preparing for this episode, you've done a little bit of work for us. Tell me about it. Well, you've mentioned the problem about iTunes waiting for the server to mount, and that's a job for Apple Script. So what I've done is I've created an applet 
for you to include in your login items, which you do through System Preferences and the Users and Groups pane. Now at startup, the applet will launch and immediately attempt to mount the server. The script will wait until it can confirm that the server is actually accessible, and only then will it launch iTunes. Now, we wanted to come up with a script solution that didn't require you to enter a username and password since, while that is the secure way to do it, it is kind of awkward for Apple script to deal with. But we're kind of getting around that, and well, I think you can explain that a little better than I can. Yeah, Doug and I came up with a clever solution. When you mount a network volume or a drive on a Mac, you can make an alias of that drive or volume, and you can put it in any folder on your Mac, and you double-click it, and it opens. Now, what happens when you double-click it is that your Mac is sending your username and the password to the device at the same time that it's asking to open that folder or volume. So you don't need to enter a username and password. It's in your keychain, which is what manages passwords on your Mac. And this means that Doug was able to make this script without having to request a username and password, which also means that you don't need to enter any credentials each time you run the applet, which would be the case if that were necessary. What it actually does is it fires an alias to a folder that is on the server. And you have to place the alias in a particular folder, and the script looks for that alias, finds the original folder that that alias refers to, and just waits until that particular folder that you aliased is actually accessible. And once, it, once the script knows that that folder is accessible, then it will launch iTunes. But it gets even better because what we discovered when testing was, you may remember that I mentioned earlier that there's a setting on Mac OS that opens all the apps and windows that were open when you restart. So when I shut down my Mac, for example, I've got Safari open, I've got Mail, I've got iTunes and, and a number of apps. And when it restarts, they all open automatically and this saves me a lot of time. The problem is that if you had iTunes open, iTunes would launch automatically before this script might have time to run to mount that volume. So what this script does is if it finds that iTunes is running, it quits iTunes, then it mounts the network volume, then it relaunches iTunes. Now, if you're paying attention earlier in the show, I said that years ago, iTunes used to lose track of the path to an external volume or a network volume if you launched it and it reverted to your home folder. It doesn't anymore. It remembers that path. And when that folder is available, it switches that path back. So the situation here is iTunes launches because it's supposed to. The script launches and it says, hey, iTunes, you shouldn't be launched. Why don't you go back to sleep? Then the script mounts the volume. Then the script launches iTunes. It's really quick. I've been testing it on a 12-inch MacBook, which is not the fastest Mac. It takes a few seconds. And, and with the other apps and, and menu extras and all that that have to load, I, I really don't notice it. Yeah, and I think mostly I think people would probably use this in an unattended fashion. For instance, I know I like to have my computer shut off at night and then turn on first thing in the morning before I get up. And that's when everything loads and launches and I don't have to sit there and watch three minutes while, while things load and mount and reposition themselves. And the great thing about this is you can get up and find everything working the way you expect it to. So I mentioned that we have a little bit of advice for Windows users soon. If you're a Windows user, you probably know about this already. I had to look it up because I, I was looking on Google, you know, how do you automatically mount a drive? And Windows doesn't use that term. They, they call it drive mapping. You have to map a network drive. And I'll put a link in the show notes to an article that explains how to do this. It, it's really simple as far as Windows things are concerned. You select a folder and you tell 
Windows that it should reconnect at login and it should mount automatically. Now, I only have a very cheap Windows laptop, so I wasn't really able to test this with iTunes correctly. I'm not sure that this is always going to work. I know Windows handles apps differently when you restart or when you log in. You can set some to launch automatically. Again, I'm not sure how this works, but if you are using Windows, you want to make sure that iTunes doesn't launch automatically when you log in. You know, check this link if you want to know how to map a drive so it will mount automatically and then launch iTunes manually is the safest thing because there's no Apple script equivalent on Windows. So Windows users face the same problem that Mac users do. iTunes could load before the server is mounted. It's just, it's a crapshoot. Exactly. But the difference is that we have Apple script on our side and we can do things like this. Whereas in Windows, there might be a way to script this on Windows. And if any of our listeners know how to do this, do post a comment on our website so other users can benefit from it. And we'll also mention it in the next episode if anyone has written in about this. Neither of us have the Windows skills to know if this is possible. Right. It may be possible on a Windows box. It's just that Kirk and I are not programmed to respond in that area. So to sum up, you'd want to use a NAS for a number of reasons. It lets you consolidate files in, in a specific location rather than on your computer. It lets you set up user permissions, separate folders, access the, the content from a remote location. You can easily back up a NAS. Again, you're going to be depending on backup software on the NAS, but you can connect an external drive and back it up. There are all sorts of things you can do with it. Now, again, I mentioned that I have my Plex library there. I use Plex for videos, and I mentioned that on several episodes. It's really good to have the Plex library on a separate device because, again, it's always on. So if you want to access it on your TV, through your Apple TV, or through the Plex app on a TV, if you want to access something on your, your iPad or whatever, you can do so without worrying if your computer's on. I mean, I've been using iTunes and the Apple TV for a long time, and I switched to Plex a couple of years ago. Back in the day, I would often have problems that my computer's shut down. I got to go wake it up to watch a movie on the Apple TV or it's gone to sleep. I got to go wake it up or the Apple TV can't see it. So I have to restart it and things like that. I think a NAS is a little bit more reliable. But again, when we're talking about Plex, this is only for movies that don't have DRM. So movies that you haven't bought from the iTunes store. So this is for all the things that I've ripped from my DVDs and Blu-rays. There are some NASs that let you do iTunes sharing, is what they call it. Now, my NAS does have this feature, so I can dump music and movies into a folder and then access them from, say, an Apple TV. I've not really tried this out as much as I'd want to, and it doesn't work with anything with DRM. So putting movies and videos from the iTunes store on a NAS doesn't make things any easier for you. Okay, we're going to wrap it up here, um, covering the basics of using a NAS with, uh, with your media files. I'm sure in the future we will cover some more advanced topics. It's the sort of thing that we know a lot of our listeners are interested in. Um, we will have a link in the show notes to the launch at login script that we mentioned. And if you do want to use that script at your house, please, please read the documentation that accompanies it, which explains the simple but specific setup procedure you have to do. And you only have to do it once. Uh, to make sure that you can use it correctly. We have reached the point in the show where we tell you about what we'll be listening to. Kirk, what have you got for a next track? This week I discovered that an album that I've liked for more than 20 years was just re-released in a second edition. It's called Fragments of a Rainy Season. It's a record by John Cale. This is a CD that was recorded during his 1992 tour. He is basically a solo musician playing piano, and I think there's one or two tracks where he plays guitar. 
I, I've always liked John Cale. I've always liked the wide range of music he's done. But there's something about this particular album which is extremely personal and powerful. And the songs are simple. A lot of them are songs from his older albums like Guts and Fear is a Man's Best Friend and Paris 1919. But there's something about the way he performed on this tour that's really personal. On this tour, if I remember correctly, he did two sets. He did one set as a solo performer and one set with an actual band. And I've heard some of the band recordings from this tour, and they weren't that good. But this one is just an extraordinary album. So I recently found out that there was a 2016 re-release of this disc. Now, I believe some months ago I mentioned another John Cale album, Music for a New Society, that was re-released as well with, like, remixes. And what John Cale has done here is he's taken the same 20 songs from this album. Presumably they've been remixed, but he's changed the order, particularly putting all of the songs with lyrics by Dylan Thomas together at the beginning. And he added eight tracks of what they're calling outtakes. And four of them are solo works and four of them are solo songs with strings behind him. The results are actually somewhat disappointing. While the sound of the original tracks is a lot better, and I'm fine with changing the, the play order, it just means that when I listen to it, things sound a little bit strange because I expect a different song. The outtakes aren't that good. One of them is just a second recording of Fear is a Man's Best Friend. One of them is the, the Lou Reed song, I'm Waiting for the Man, which doesn't sound great. And the four things with strings, one of which is another recording of Fear is a Man's Best Friend, just aren't great. It's worth getting this album because it's an extraordinary John Cale album. It's worth it for the first CD, not for the second CD of the extra tracks. These are 20 extraordinary songs that he recorded in 1992. One of my favorite albums, Fragments of a Rainy Season. What about you, Doug? What are you listening to? Well, the first time I ever heard anything by the John Spencer Blues Explosion, and I have to admit I probably wasn't listening very well, I remember thinking, what is this junk? In fact, I probably said it out loud with the intention of insulting whoever was playing it for me. The John Spencer Blues Explosion is one of those bands where if you don't listen the right way, you know, past the abrasive surface, all you think you're listening to is a bunch of guys who still haven't figured out how to play their instruments. But I know better now. The John Spencer Blues Explosion is a trio, John Spencer, Judah Bauer, and Russell Simmons, ostensibly a blues outfit that puts garage and punk and experimental and noise and postmodern and frankly, I don't know what they put into the blender to get their sound. And the record that finally converted me is the 2007 collection of singles and rarities called Jukebox Explosion. Now, while called the Blues Explosion, I think you'd be hard pressed to categorize their music as blues. While it doesn't always sound like blues from the blues bin at the record store, it has a blues soul in there somewhere. And, and in fact, as, as an aside, they backed up bluesman R.L. Burnside on one of his albums, so they got some cred. Maybe you're familiar with Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band. The same sort of effort it took for me to appreciate them is what it took to get my head into the John Spencer Blues Explosion. Loud, noisy, funny, a rhythmic, wild, outrageous, I am now a convert. They have several very well-liked records, at least by fans, but this week, Jukebox Explosion by the John Spencer Blues Explosion is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. 
If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.